Hello and welcome to the MMA 20 Years Ago podcast, where we are going back in the time machine to February of 1997 to bring you volume four of this month's show with all your UFC coverage as we talk all things UFC 12. Volume one of this month's Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast is taking you back to all your WCW action, looking at Super Brawl. Volume two will be covering WWF in your house final four. Volume 3 is covering ECW and the Cyber Slam show. And of course, this is Volume 4 bringing you your MMA coverage. Joining me for this month, we have first Bob Bamba. Good afternoon, Chris. Good afternoon, Bob. And also joining us, we have Tom Martin. Tom, how are you doing? I'm very well, Chris. Very well. Very happy to be here. Good to hear. Good to hear. So we'll get right in uh, to this month's Media Corner with quite a lot of stuff to cover. So, Bob, over to you. Yeah, uh, Chris threw me the ball at about two or three days ago saying, Bob, can you put together the media notes for this month's show? I don't have time. I'm like, yeah, fine. Um, and then I sat down, watched the show, having not done any of the prep. Um, I thought, this show looks fine. All well and good. Sure, it'll be very, very brief and easy media section to put together. And then I read through all of the prep that I needed to do for Media Corner, and holy shit, does some stuff go down. So... This show, up until around 36 hours before it was meant to happen, was meant to take place in Niagara Falls in New York. But it didn't, and here's why. So, despite a state legislature that was passed uh, in New York legalising the UFC, following a storm of media pressure and a renewed push that was made by Governor George Pataki, New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, City Council Speaker Peter Vallone, and State Senator Roy Goodman to get the event scheduled for Niagara Falls banned. Opinion, it seems, was turned on an opinion piece that was published in the New York Times on the 17th of January, which hit on the following points. The fact that no competitor had been killed yet was, quote, more of a testimony to its novelty than its safety. And another full quote here says the following. Extreme fighting puts two contestants in a ring surrounded by a chain link fence. They're allowed to pummel each other into pulp until one of them becomes unconscious or surrenders or until a doctor stops the action because the contestant has sustained a serious injury. Headbutts, kicks to the groin, punches to the kidneys are all allowed. The rules prohibit only eye gouging, biting and New York State at least kicks to the throat. No one with points for style. The promotions hawk violence, blood and pain, not athletic technique. The fact that audiences may relish seeing men bleed and that some fighters will risk any amount of injury for prize money or glory does not justify the state's approving of these exhibitions of brutality. Now it should be said the context of this was the UFC show that was going to take place in February and also an extreme fighting championship show that was made to take place in March. USC were also planning a show for May at the Nassau Coliseum um, obviously that whole thing fell apart anyway the tide turned on the media pressure that was built around that article another one that was published in the the New York Times a couple of days prior and also surrounding um, basically those people I mentioned earlier basically very important people in New York State that wanted it banned apparently despite the fact as we said before there was a you know they had legislature passed about six months ago I think that went right through but the the opinion seems to have turned around Uh, it was felt that it was impossible for any new legislature to be put in place in time for the show for Niagara Falls, but the extreme fighting show planned for March will be in jeopardy. This is where it gets complicated, because while new legislature couldn't be put in place, don't try to read that very quickly, it seemed like it was possible for the state to change the existing regulations. 
So that's what they did under the guise of a 114-page rule book that they said. Now this is interesting. So they, they basically there were there were two halves to the, the summary of all this. One was what they wanted to ban, and two were the new rules they wanted to put in place. A lot of it seems very draconian, but you might notice if you look somewhat closely, there's some very modern-day USC rules that were kind of mentioned even at this early stage. So they wanted to ban chokes, kicking above the shoulders or below the knee, headbutting, strikes to the throat, striking while an opponent was down, usage of knees or elbows to strike, and any strikes at all on the neck or spine. And they also wanted to mandate the following. Eight ounce boxing gloves be worn, protective headgear worn, so basically want to turn into amateur boxing. They want to implement five different weight classes, ban any matches where competitors aren't in the same weight class. They said that matches must be in five minute rounds and matches must be judged by a ten point must system a la the one used in boxing. And, and this was quite critical, and when we say they wanted to change the rules, they did effectively want to ban them without banning them. They said that the octagon must be at least 40 feet in diameter, which was bigger than the 32 feet octagon that USC were using. Basically with the idea that they changed the rules so late um, that USC wouldn't have time to build a new octagon, which basically stuffed them. Now USC basically thought, well, they can't put this through, you can't change the, you can't change the rules on an existing contract. So they went into a, a court battle basically said, ah, we'll be alright. They they ran a venue in Alabama, which is where we're going to get to, about eight days before the show, and said, can we have you as a backup? To which they said yes. But they called them back, but I'm paraphrasing a bit, and basically said, we don't think we're going to need you. Anyway, so, day before the show, U.S. Federal Court Judge Miriam Goldman Sederbaum ruled that SEG had not proven that the 114-page rule book would cause irreparable damage. And so the rules would be allowed to be implemented. And this is where I'll stop for a quick brief bit of discussion. But this is where the story gets quite interesting. Uh, Tom, let's start to you first. I mean, this is a, 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 a kind of somewhat of a repeat of the story we've been dealing with for months and months. Um, but even so, this was all pretty noteworthy. Yeah, I mean, what a bloody mess, uh, really. It's one of those things that you often hear about these uh, types of events nearly happening, but then at the last minute they finally manage to sort these things out because it's such a big event and there's so many people that have paid for tickets. And there's, I mean, when you when you read the details, I'm sure you're going to go on to it, but what they actually had to do in order to, to move it, I, ca- I just can't believe it got it got to that late, that late in the game um, with the potential of it at, still happening. And I, I'm, I, I, like you, I, I, I watched the show, to it at the end when they talk about they're in they're in uh, a, a building that they shouldn't be basically and I thought that's a bit odd. I looked, then I looked it up and then I saw your comment. Uh, you, you sent a message to both of us just saying, "Oh my god!" I just realised what's in the in the news when you read it. I, I just it's flabbergasting. You know, when you when you go through the the actual um, you know the, the, the points that you made um, that they they put in that 114 page paper. It's uncanny. I mean, some of it is ridiculous. Like when it says, you know, we're not going to have the usage of knees and elbows to strike. Uh, that, that, I mean, that eliminates a whole load of um, offence. But and a lot of the rest of it is really uncanny. You know, like it's, it's almost like they, they had it in mind at this point where they wanted it to go. But there was a lot, probably a lot of red tape to get through in order to actually get it implemented. Um, five, five weight classes, you know, eight ounce boxing gloves, uh, you know, the headgear they wanted. But... But yeah, as you say, they basically want to turn into, into amateur boxing, and um, you know MMA has got a lot to um, it's got a lot to owe boxing. Um, you know the, the fact that boxing existed and, and it was a combat sport that they were able to say, look, we're not that different from them. 
um, and implement the same scoring system, etc., then you know so you can you can say a big thank you to, to, to the sport of boxing. I think as a, as an MMA fan yourself, but yeah, yeah, crazy times. Because if you put them in boxing gloves, you, you you don't need to ban chokes and other forms of submission. It basically becomes impossible. Well, you, you'd still be able to throw elbows and, and uh, knees because you know gloves wouldn't wouldn't stop you doing that. But um, yeah, it, 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 you can tell by looking at it that they've thrown in absolutely everything that they can possibly think of in order to get it through. Um, but and I'd say probably what seventy five percent of when you go through it has actually stuck, uh, and, the, and the other twenty five hasn't. But yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, they introduced gloves later in the year, but obviously the, the, the modern-style USC gloves, not boxing gloves, the headgear never gets anywhere. Weight classes, we get there, not future. Um, barring any matches where competitors are in the same weight class, obviously, same kind of thing. Five-minute rounds, yeah, we're going to get there. Um, Ten-point must system, boxing, when they're using that, I mean, they didn't really change it either. Um, mm. And then Octagon, the Octagon hasn't got any bigger, has it, or has it? Uh, I don't think so. That's a weird one, that. I, I don't understand what what the justification of having an extra eight feet would do to make it any... Because they, they as I said, they, well, no, because they, they, they didn't have time to build another ring, so they, they wouldn't they, be able to do it. Yeah, but they must have been... They must have, they, that, that wouldn't have been the reason they gave as to why they, you know... I, I, I'm sure I, I, I'm sure if there was a will, there was a way, and they could have come up with any phony excuse they like for, for having extra space to... Yeah, um, maybe. You know, you, you paint the... If you can pretend that the, the fence is barbaric, then you can justify, well, if you have a bigger space to fight in, there'll be less scope for going up against the fence. Some bullshit like that. Chris? Yeah, I think on the on the size of the octagon, it's probably just, as you say, it's, a, it's an aesthetic thing. That article that seemed to have changed public opinion, it highlights the fact that it's surrounded by the chain-link fence, and that sort of has like the, the barbaric imagery, and I think that does maybe... Put, but especially in the time frame of 1997, that changes a lot of people's opinions in itself. The fact that it's like cage fighting that has that has a certain ring to it at that time. No hold bars, cage fighting. Um, some of the uh, rules are just completely frivolous, like the banning of chokes and submissions and things like that in a in a mixed martial arts sport. Especially when you see some of the pioneers of this sport going back to like UFC one and things like that, and like jujitsu practi- practitioners. And people like that. I mean, to implement a rule like that kills the sport dead, um, as you say. That, like they're trying to make it like an amateur boxing. But obviously, some of the some of the uh, rules in this 114-page document do get implemented on and are better for the sport in the long term. They, they enhance the sport, such as I think the weight classes enhance the sport, the rounds, um, and the scoring system. I mean, there has the scoring system until. What 2017 stayed exactly the 10 point boxing system? They've now added the 10 7 round, which has to be implemented in an attempt to increase the number of 10 8 rounds. But with the exception of just adding the 10 7, 10, 7 scores, the exact same point system as boxing. So this is really interesting, um, sort of, and as you said, noteworthy and newsworthy uh, point to bring up before the show. Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm not. You know, I'm not sure either way, but I'm not necessarily sure it was as a result of this document that these kind of changes were made. I think it was just they were just throwing stuff against the wall, but equally there just coincidentally happens to be stuff that UFC and, uh, and Monday MMA ended up adopting. Um, but yeah, the story continues. So this was around 36 hours before showtime. So they phoned back the venue in Alabama and said, 
we need a venue, they're able to get it. Um, but obviously it left them with two problems. First of all, they'd sold about 2,000 tickets for the show in Niagara Falls and ended up having to refund, which was an problem financially, but certainly not the biggest. They had the bigger problem that because it was so close to showtime, all the flights have been booked, everyone was there. We I mean, forget flights have been booked, everyone was in the area. Octagon Wars, the fighters, all of the entourages, the fans, not that most of the fans travelled. But they had, you know, and also they had a pay-per-view date book, so they couldn't really move it. So they had about 24 hours to get everyone from New York to a place called Dalton in Alabama, which, from what I can tell on Google Maps, is about 1,800 kilometres away by road. Um, so they were able to charter a flight um, to Montgomery, Alabama, which is over 100 miles away. They landed at about 2 a.m. on the day of the show. They then got everyone in a series of buses and drove them about two or three hours towards the venue, got them into hotels around 5 a.m., or so the story goes. Everyone has to be out of the hotels by midday because of some existing bookings for some other event that was taking place the following day. And then after the show, to save on the logistics, ridiculous logistical nightmare and the extra cost they had, they had to get everyone on another flight out of Alabama basically not long after the show get them back to New York so they could effectively meet what were then travel connections that they were originally going to take out to save on more cost I need to say they just you know in terms of money they just lost bank on this entire show um, but I think when you consider that you know, I watched this show, and I kind of, one of the things I wrote down was, production-wise, very good, organisation-wise, very, very good. Didn't notice anything wrong with it. When you put this context in, it was a miracle they got everything off. Um, and the other thing was, that the, the show in uh, in Alabama, um, 3,100 seats, all freebies, because you couldn't really sell tickets on such short notice. Um, but again, not that the crowd even, not that you even noticed the crowd being a negative. The crowd were, were very much into it too. Chris, I mean, that's... Uh, that's a hell of a story, that. That's a hell of a, you know, what a what a tale. Just imagine bundling all of these fighters and everyone onto this plane at, like, midnight to get them down to Alabama and then expecting them. You were talking about, like, fighter safety. It's like, yeah, drive them out of the state they're meant to be in five hours away so they can travel overnight for a show the following night. It's chaos. It's, it's almost incomprehensible when looking at it from a, a modern-day mindset. Where you have such a debate within modern MMA around sort of like potential unionization of fighters and fighter pay and things like that. And compared to fighters in 1997 who would have been fighting on this UFC 12 show, I mean, the money that fighters make today, while still not enough, is through the roof compared to, to back then. Can you imagine trying to orchestrate something like this and moving fighters and their camps and things like that? on a day's notice, and they're going to be travelling through the night the day before a fight. They'll just be, like, it just wouldn't happen. It's, it's completely mad. And as you say, watching this show without knowing all this context to it with, like, how much of a disaster it was in the build-up in the final 24 hours or so, it's an absolute credit to everyone involved that they put on such a good show, um, production-wise, that everyone was professional, everyone was focused, and they really delivered a really solid... Uh, UFC show really that was put together just as well if not better than any other show from this era that we've seen Tom? Yeah I'd agree with pretty much all of that, I, I think it's amazing to think that this is a professional sport and it's like, it's, it's the equivalent of I just, I'm just trying to think of a, a similar thing happening in a different sport 
Um, but it just wouldn't. It just wouldn't. But, but, I, but I suppose that's because the sport was very, was quite. It was still quite use, useful at this stage. It hadn't been going for the time that it has, and um, a full credit to them. And I think the fact that they've done the pay per views uh, a number of times before. Um, that they probably, you know, considered it to be a, a success from the fact that, okay, even even if we have to move the show the night before, we've got to move everyone and get it all sh- shifted over, we can still run it and still run it well. So I was, I was very impressed. Um, and, you know, if you're, if you're going to try and give 3,000 free tickets away um, and expect the crowd to be as up for it and as, you know, they were chanting, everyone, a really good atmosphere, it was, it was, you know, part of that maybe because it was free, but, you know, they still filled it out. Um, I, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a massive success when you think about it all. Um, so no, fair play to UFC. Absolutely um, remarkable. Craig on, Chris. So one modern day comparison would be over the most recent weekend. We've obviously had the in La Liga, the uh, Real Madrid game was cancelled on a few days' notice. But Real Madrid, uh, as a club, were quite insistent they was meant to go ahead. They were playing Celta Vigo away, and there was an issue with Celta's stadium, like a crack in the roof or the roof collapsed in an area of the stadium. It was ruled the game couldn't go on there. And Real Madrid lobbied quite hard to have the game moved, even maybe to Portugal. And, and Celta completely refused outright. In the end, the game wasn't played yesterday at all. And it's created a bit of a logistical nightmare for, for the league for the rest of the season. So, right. I mean, that's professional football in 2017. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, to have MMA as such an underground sport in 1997, be able to pull something like this off, is pretty outrageous. Um yeah, I, I just love the idea of walking up to Scott Ferrozo 36 hours before he's going to fight and saying, Scott, we're going to stick you in a cramped plane for two or three hours, flying overnight. You have to get a, a three-hour bus journey to a hotel. Oh, yeah, and can you fight tomorrow? Not not to single out Ferrozo. I'm sure all the fighters were equally affected. But I just get, you know, you used to have something like, I'd just be like, what the fuck? But, you know, you, I, yeah, when, at this stage in the sport, you gotta fight, right? That's always the, that's always been the mantra. The show must go on some way, shape or form. But would it? Yeah, I on? think, I think the other thing to consider though is that these guys will be mentally prepared to fight the next day, right? So they have training camps that go on for months. And then they, they've been moved about and shifted about and it would have caused a lot of, um, uh, I mean, it wouldn't, you know, their, their training camp still would have happened. It's not as if they only trained the night before. But mentally, it would have shifted them all. Um, and I, I can't, I, I'm amazed that this is the first I've actually ever heard of this. Because like, actually reading up about it and watching it is actually the first time I've ever heard of it. And it, it sort of slipped under the radar um, a little bit. So I, I, I can't believe a bigger deal wasn't made of it. But yeah, as we said, fair play. Yeah, and while I just spot a line in my notes, I skipped the uh, the, the plane got delayed slightly because they had issues with the weight of the octagon in the plane. Um, but yeah, that all you right. sure that wasn't you sure it wasn't the weight of Scott Frozo that was causing the issue. Well, that, that, that as well, probably oh, both. Oh, um, yeah, um, not just Scotty, I suppose. Anyway, on to the show. So let's talk about some actual fighters, shall we? No massive news in terms of stuff moving around. There were fighter changes, but nobody really of any note. Uh, Ken Sharrock was sort of expected to be on the card, but from what I'm reading up, there was never really an expectation he was. Well, I say that, I think he was involved in some advertising, but I believe falsely. Um, Essentially, Sharrock was on a $200,000 a year contract in 1996, with UFC having the option to pick up 1997 at $300,000. They declined that option, so Sharon was essentially a free agent but still working with them. And as we're going to get to on this month's WWF show, Sharon does rock up on Monday Night Raw at the end of February, amongst other things. So that's that. Anyway, Sharon was on this show, but as part of commentary, 
as was Tank Abbott. Uh, Dom Fraud was meant to fight Dan Seven in this fight uh, on this show, but was still having the uh, injury issues that he suffered on the December show. So he was on he was on the show again, also just commentating on the super fight in the main event. Uh, at the time, it was expected that he would face uh, uh, the winner of Seven and Colton for the main event in May, but obviously that doesn't happen because Friday doesn't fight again for about three or four years. Um, and also matchmaking, just going forward. Uh, Marco Hua, again, took out another guy that never ends up happening. There were reports at the time they'd verbally agreed to deal with his his uh, his party surrounding a three-fight UFC deal. That never happened. Um, and also there was just the idea that Sharrock wanted to fight with Abbott, but Abbott didn't want to fight Sharrock. Abbott said he wanted to fight a Brazilian, um, but he didn't want to fight Belfort because he was because t- um, Belfort was too small and Kimo because he would be too easy. So that was all of that. Uh, Tom, any thoughts on that? And then I think we'll get on with the show. Um, no, not really. I mean, there's, there's a lot. There's a lot of uh, smoke and mirrors, as you say. It's hard to know how much of that is actually factually correct. But you know, Tank, Tank Abbott is clearly making life quite difficult for the UFC in in, in uh, his uh, you know his career, next next fights and what have you. And I think we'll touch on that as well. But he he, he clearly is trying to roll them up, and I think he quite enjoys um, winding up the company. But yeah, let's let's go. Chris, any more before we go on? No, that's all good for me. Straight into the show, if that's if that works. Let's do it. Okay, so let's get going on UFC 12. We have a new format for this show featuring... uh, It's got two separate four-man tournaments, which has been introduced based around two different weight divisions. One for those above 200 pounds, and one for those uh, below 200 pounds. These are introduced to us by our commentary team for the evening of Jeff Blatnick and Bruce Beck, who start the show by uh, running through that new format. Um, first up, we have the lightweight division, the under 200 pound division. They run down the four-man tournament bracket. Uh, the only familiar name um, for for us there, we have Jerry Bolander, and the other three fighters are all UFC debutants. On the heavyweight side of things, the only fighter we have previously seen in the UFC is Scott Ferrozo, who is a very noteworthy UFC debut for none other than the 19-year-old Vitor Belfort. Our main event for the evening is a super fight, uh, which is between Mark Coleman and Dan Seven, which is billed as the unification bout between Dan Seven's UFC Super Fight Championship and the UFC Tournament Championship, which Mark Coleman holds. And this fight would determine the first ever UFC heavyweight champion. Uh, there were two alternate bouts on the show. Firstly, the lightweight division. Nick Sanzo defeated Jackie Lee via TKO after just 48 seconds. And in the heavyweight division, Justin Martin defeated Eric Martin via submission in just 14 seconds. Would you like to pick up the results of the card? Uh, yes, please, Bob, actually. <laughs> yes, we, uh, we always forget that, although I, I only did it until you started reading out the, uh, the, uh, the alternate, so I'll, I'll pick up where you left off. Uh, we start with the lightweight semi-finals, as Jerry Bolander defeated Rainey Martinez uh, by a naked choke. Uh, Yoshihiki Takahashi defeated Valid Ismail by decision after 15 minutes. In the heavyweight bracket, Scott Ferrozo defeated Jim Mullen by TKO. Vitor Belfort defeated Trey Telligman, uh, also by TKO. Uh, in the lightweight final, Nick Sanzo, the alternate standing in uh, for, uh, who was it? It was Takahashi, that's right, lost to Bolander uh, by a submission in 40 seconds. In the heavyweight final, Vitor Belfort defeated Scott Ferrozo by TKO. And the UFC heavyweight championship match, Mark Coleman defeated Dan Seven by submission in 257. Thank you very much, Bob. 
So, uh, back to the start of the show, and we cut backstage and meet the newest member of UFC's broadcast team. And it is none other than Joe Rogan, looking very fresh-faced and young. And uh, I think we can all agree, we've all spoken about it before the show, but we absolutely have had no idea he was involved as far back as UFC 12. It's quite remarkable to see him. It was such a surprise. He's um, got hair. Yeah, I, he looks so young. I mean, it's pre-Fear Factor days and everything. It, it's, it was quite remarkable. Um, it's also just, I, I know it's the same with Bruce Buffer, but it's also just, you know, pre-Joe Rogan kind of personality on TV. You know, it's it's weird. Like, I can, he was recognisable enough to, to, to me to think that's Joe Rogan. But he didn't, it, talk in a way like Joe Rogan talks. You know, there wasn't that confidence or that brashness or to an extent, just that experience. It's like we watched Bruce Buffer do the announcing. It's like, well, I mean, it, it looks like Bruce Buffer, but it looks like someone doing a very bad impression of Bruce Buffer. This is kind of similar to that. Um, yeah. But yeah, as, as we kind of spoke about yesterday, like, you want to talk about the biggest non-fighting personalities in UFC in 2017. Of the names you'd mentioned, Dana White would be one. But the rest, you'd say Joe Rogan, who's still around, having debuted in 97. You'd say John McCarthy, who's still around, having debuted at the start. You'd probably say Mike Goldberg, who's still around, well, who's just finished, having debuted later this year, I think. Um, and the other one would be Bruce Buffer, who's still around, having debuted last year, although he wasn't on this show. Um, very, very strange. Of the, I'd say of the five most recognisable names, or five of, four of them were around 20 years ago. Yeah, it was quite uh, quite remarkable, uh, a bit of a surprise. Um, Rogan on this show, he's backstage and he will be interviewing the fighters before the fights and uh, as they come out of the octagon, he'll be interviewing winners and losers. Uh, they run down the rules, which are the no biting, no eye gouging or fish hooking. Of course, the referee can restart the fight due to a lack of action. As far as time limits goes, in the semi-finals of the two tournaments, we've got 12-minute time limits with a three-minute overtime. Uh and in the finals, we and the uh, heavyweight championship match, there's a 15-minute time limit with a three-minute overtime period in those ones. So uh, we get things started with the lightweight tournament semi-finals. So Bob, I'll throw over to you here for uh, to run through the fighter profiles. Yeah, semi-final number one, Jerry Bolander versus Rainy Martinez. Martinez here making his MMA debut, comes from an amateur wrestling background, but is also 9-0 and as an amateur kickboxer. He weighed in at £195. His opponent, Jerry Bolander, ends with a 2-1 and UFC record, one of those victories coming against heavyweight tournament fighter Scott Ferrozo, a 22-year-old submission fighter, fighter weighed in at £199. At this point, Ken Shamrock joins the commentary team for the night. Um, uh, well, not for the night, just for the uh, lightweight fights. He'll be there. He, of course, is uh, supporting his Lions Den teammate, Jerry Bolander. Manny Garcia runs through the formal in-ring in introductions, and Big John McCarthy gets us underway. Bolander quickly throws some leg kicks before jumping in for the takedown attempt. Martinez tries to sprawl, but Bolander is able to get him down against the cage. Bolander is in side mount, and as both men scramble, he moves into half guard. Martinez is able to roll out and briefly get back to his feet, but Bolander swiftly takes him back down into the fence, into side mount. Martinez rolls, gives up his back, and Bolander quickly gets the, his hooks in and locks in a rear naked choke for the submission victory after just one minute and 18 seconds. Uh, Tom, I'll come over to you first for that one. What did you think of the opening fight? So, a good opener, I thought. Uh, it wasn't given time to really... Um 
develop into into something anything other than Jerry Bolander coming across as very very impressive. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things I thought about when I looked at the fight was there's an 11 year age difference between the two. Bolander did seem to have an extra spring in his step. Uh, he, he he seems he's so he's fresh. He he's got uh, another level of energy um, that that I think helped him here. Uh, and yeah, it, it was really impressive. Just, it, 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 I just wish it had more time. I, I, that's often the way with it with fights, and there's quite a few on this on this card. Um, they just finish a little bit too early, and you know, I, you, I, I wish they could um, have given us uh, more time to, to, to develop. But uh, no, very impressive um, from Bylander, and yeah, I, I think he's he's we've seen him before, but he's one that uh, it's fascinating to watch him because he just seems to get better and better every time we see him. Um, but yeah, no, it was a good, good fight, good start, but I just wish it was a bit longer. Uh, Bob? Yeah, you do have to kind of get over the fact that Martinez does seem like his head is too big for his body. Um, <laughs> but once you can get over that kind of slightly odd visual, um, good fight. Uh, you know, I think this, 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 yeah, this is why the, the, why the stuff at the top of the show seems so strange is that this felt like the most polished UFC show in terms of the production, in terms of how they put everything together, Rogan backstage, the interviews, etc., etc. And also just because of the standard of the fights, like, you know, with, with the guys that were involved, like Martinez did not look like a slouch. Balana just caught him, managed to get him kind of on his back, or get on his back, sorry. Um, got in position on the fence and just submitted him. I kind of agree with Tom. It would have been, in a weird kind of way, it would have been interesting to see what happened this fight had any longer. But Bolander continues to look very impressive. Yeah, just to jump in there, I, I thought that um, Martinez, although he didn't get much time to, to show us a lot, really, but he actually had some nice takedown defence. And it was, as you say, I think if, if it had an extra couple of minutes, this would have been a real barnstorm, a really good, really good fight. Um, but, but it just came across as very impressive for Bolander, yeah. Yeah, agree with both of you. I, I enjoyed this opening fight. Um, good again from Bolander. He's he, and as Tom said, he does continue to get better. Um, he's someone who, with this two hundred pound or under division, him weighing at one ninety nine, um, and him looking good against much heavier fighters in the past, this is really going to benefit him in his career. You'd imagine uh, in his immediate future. Um, and uh, Shamrock was impressed with him here as well, his uh, training partner on commentary. Yeah, a short fight, as you both said. Would have been nice to see it go a bit longer, but it was fine and impressive from Bolander. Uh, Rogan then interviews Bolander backstage. He credits the victory to his previous experience in the UFC as compared to Martinez, who had none. He says it's nice finally fighting guys his own size as he can demonstrate his superior technique. Um, and after that, we cut back to the octagon where we are getting ready for our second lightweight semi-final. So, Bob, over to you once again to introduce the fighters. Yes, semi-final number two in the lightweight tournament. It's Valid Ismail versus Yoshihiki Takahashi. Ismail here seen making his UFC debut is 4-0 in MMA. He is an eight-time Brazilian jiu-jitsu champion and weighs in at 182 pounds. His opponent, Yoshihiki Takahashi, is also making his UFC debut, has vast MMA experience with a 9-7 and 1 record, including two losses to Ken Shamrock. He weighed in at 196 pounds. Thank you, Bob. Um, Ishmael takes an absolute age to make his entrance, which leads to some stalling from the announcers as they talk about how in the UFC you have to expect the unexpected. Eventually, both guys make their way to the octagon, and we are underway. After a tentative opening, Takahashi lands a few strong punches and shoves off a takedown attempt from Ishmael. Ishmael grabs on, but they grapple for position against the cage. 
Takahashi reaches over Ishmael and basically is just giving him a wedgie here, grabbing the back of his shorts uh, for leverage and really pulling him up quite high. Ishmael tries to take down, but Takahashi ga- grabs the fence to protect, pre- prevent it. Sorry. Big John yells over and over, let go of the fence, but Takahashi seemingly does not understand. Ishmael is still trying for the takedown, but Takahashi has control in a front face lock. He releases that to grab the fence let again, yet again, which causes Big John to start shouting orders to let go once more. Ishmael transitions into a rear waist lock and tries to pull Takahashi down, who avoids this by hanging onto the fence. Big John is fuming with this, this time physically removing Takahashi's hands from the cage. This allows Ishmael to successfully get the takedown with a trip but Takahashi is quickly able to work back to his feet, landing some punches inside the clinch before both fighters separate. Ishmael presses forward, but Takahashi lands two right hooks which drop the Brazilian. Uh, Takahashi then immediately starts yelling at McCarthy to administer a standing eight count, as that would be the case in Pancrase. The fight continues with no eight count, as this is the UFC. Uh, Both guys on their feet, Ishmael pressing forward with Takahashi doing all the damage with some crisp counters. Ishmael eventually shoots in again, but Takahashi sprawls and uses the fence to keep him health from being taken down once again. Ishmael keeps working for the takedown, but Takahashi is continuously using the cage to keep himself up. Takahashi then proceeds to tear the protective cup out of Ishmael's shorts and lands some strikes to the groin. I know that isn't against the rules, but that is pretty startling visual when you tear the protective cup out of someone's shorts and start punching them and kneeing them there it's pretty dirty um, really as well as all the cage holding so far well funny enough not so that the New York State Commission tried to outlaw that's true that's true you'd think if you were outlawing chokes and whatnot, tearing the protective cup out of someone's shorts and kneeing them in the groin would be outlawed but apparently not can't do it with boxing gloves I suppose that's true um Takahashi then continues holding the cage, leading to McCarthy physically removing his hand yet again. Ishmael looks for the single leg, but Takahashi is able to counter with an ankle pick and gets on top in Ishmael's guard. He lands a combination of hammer fists and headbutts, and this continues to the end of the 12-minute regulation time period. Ishmael, as he gets back to his feet, looks absolutely spent, and his face is a mess. As they prepare for the overtime, McCarthy tells Takahashi that he's not allowed to hold the fence. And this time, he seems to understand. We are underway in overtime. Both fighters stand in the centre with no action for the first 30 seconds. Ishmael is out on his feet, really. Both fighters trade a few punches before Takahashi attempts to call a timeout, citing a poke to the eye. Of course, this is not in the UFC rules, so McCarthy ignores this and orders them to continue. Ishmael is out on his feet, barely moving. Takahashi closes the distance and lands some nice shots which drop Ishmael. Takahashi then throws and lands an illegal kick, which is illegal only because he is wearing shoes. McCarthy signals that this should be noted by the judges. Ishmael looks really wobbly, with Takahashi landing the occasional combination as the fight slowly comes to an end. We go to the judges, who give Takahashi the win by unanimous decision. Uh, Bob, I'll come to you on that one. Thoughts on the fight and uh, all the sort of mayhem with Takahashi and Ishmael at times, the both sort of disregarding the few rules you do have in the UFC. 
Yeah, one thing to clarify for last month's show, I did uh, when I started putting the notes together, I started with the the notes from the last show. One thing they said in the lead up to that was that fence holding isn't illegal, provided you're doing something. You just can't hold onto the fence to storm. I mean, they were, but it you know it does kind of frame slightly differently what we're saying. Um, but yeah, I'm not particularly sure Takahashi had been run through the rules before he came out here. Um, suffice to say that he was holding onto the fence a lot, and to the point where I kind of thought. McCarthy should have stopped it, not stopped the fight, but should have kind of pulled them up and said, you can't do that, do it again, it's going to be a warning, and again, it'll be a disqualification or whatever. I think to a point they were both doing it, Ishmael was doing it a bit less, but he was doing it enough as well. Um, a weird fight from that sense, a weird fight from the sense that Takahashi thought he was in Pancrase, you know, that he, he knocked, knocked Ishmael down and then kind of looked at McCarthy and went, what's going on? McCarthy went, you've got to fight. Um, but let's let's overlook that. This was a tremendous fight. Um, these are two guys that both look really, really good. Um, and Takahashi, I'm sure you'll get to, kind of ended up sort of breaking his wrist, sort of, sort of breaking his hand, sort of not. Um, but he fought through the pain of that. And Ishmael didn't look bad either. It just got to the point where he was just knackered at the end of it. Um, but really, really good fight. Impressed by both guys. And to frame frame this fight, I think a lot of people thought Ishmael was going to win it. And apparently Takahashi in, uh, back in Japan ended up being a real hero after this. So it helped they didn't have to fight in the final. Or we couldn't. Um, but yeah, very, very good fight. Very entertaining. A lot going on. Uh, really boring. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Tom, your thoughts on all of this? Agree for the most part with, with well actually pretty much all of it with, with, with what, what Bob said. I mean, although the only thing I would say is that there is absolutely no way that Takahashi didn't understand what John McCarthy was telling him. The, well, well, the way I was thinking of this was right. If, if you're a child, and I won't go too much of a tangent on it, if you're a child and you're in your in your kitchen and your mum has made some lovely new cookies from the oven, if she puts them on the counter and you go to take one and she smacks your hand. The first time you do that, as a five-year-old child, you know, I probably shouldn't do that again. If you did it again, you're being cheeky. If you do it again, you're taking the piss out of your mum. Takahashi was taking the piss out of John McCarthy. He knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, There's no way that you can't understand when someone physically takes your hand and removes it from a cage um, that you can go, oh, well, I just didn't didn't know the rules. Uh, And he knew exactly what he was doing. And and taking the cup out, dirty... Uh, the kick that was with the shoe, with the, with the uh, shoe, you know, the, with the footwear on, that was nasty. He, it, it was a really, you know, this was a really interesting fight, and it went the full fifteen minutes. Um, but I almost wanted it, wanted it to keep going because it was just like, well, what else can happen here? Like it was so interesting just to see um, where what was going to happen with it. But Ismail, I mean, when they did the overtime, he could he could literally barely stand up, and I, and I was thinking, God, is he does he actually want to fight? I, I, I actually thought to myself, is he going to say, I don't, I don't want to do this? Because he just wasn't coming, he wasn't forthcoming, he was standing there with his hands down. Um, he looked like he'd rather be anywhere in the world other than in that cage with, with Takahashi. Um, but no, Takahashi was really impressed me actually. He did a lovely um, ankle pick um, sort of in the, in the second, second third of, of the fight um, to, get, to get Ishmael on his back. And, and um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a really interesting fight, a, a, a sort of captivating fight. Um, but John McCarthy was getting so wound up, he was screaming. Um, and when they when they announced the, the 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 judges did the cards for whoever um, they thought was the winner, which is a very odd way of doing it. They just put the names up, um, which is really odd. It's like some weird reality TV uh, talent show. Um, but then someone in the crowd wrote, and I, I said, and I wrote this down. He held the fence the whole fucking time, which really made me laugh. Uh, but no, that was good. I enjoyed this one. Yeah, I did enjoy it. It was, 
equally equal parts frustrating and captivating to me. Uh, Sakashi, I agree with you, Tom. Acted like he didn't know what John was saying, but the longer the fight went on and the more he was grabbing that cage and there were no repercussions, more power to the guy, I guess, for continuing to hold it and avoiding the takedown and making Ishmael expend so much energy, which I'm sure played a large part in how knackered he was in the overtime period. I know a large part of that as well. The last two minutes, he was uh, being pummeled on the ground as well. But, I mean, he expended a lot of energy throughout the first sort of 10 minutes of regulation time here, trying to get that takedown. Um, it was quite comical at times, like calling for the timeout for the eye poke, uh, trying to get a standing eight count. It was it was a really fun fight, but it was just wacky. Like, like I think even if you talk, took me sort of comedy spots out of it, you'd probably enjoy the fight just for its action as well. So it was quite a unique, a unique watch, really, with two guys who had either no understanding or just complete disregard for the few rules there are in UFC as compared to other MMA promotions at the time. One thing I didn't like, although as Bob did point out, uh, I I know it's not against the rules and it it wasn't even mentioned as being something that would be against the rules, but I did agree uh, with you, Tom, how dirty it was to pull the protective cup out of someone's shorts and then start striking to the groin. I mean, it's not illegal, but I think that crosses a line for me, um, maybe. Um, yeah, it's willful intent, isn't it? He, 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 had, he had a plan in mind of what he was trying to do, and it's just a really grubby, dirty way of fighting. It's, it's, it's too dirty. It feels like it's cheating, but it, uh, technically not. Um, but, yeah, I really enjoyed this. It was a unique watch and entertaining watch. So, yeah, big thumbs up for the two lightweight semifinals. Um, so we immediately cut. At this point, Ken Shamrock leaves the commentary team, and... Uh, we are joined by Tank Abbott for the heavyweight tournaments. So uh, before we get into the fight, Bob, introduce the two first semi-finalists. Oh, Tank Abbott calling it the small-time kiddie category. Right, heavyweight tournament semi-final number one, Scott Verozo versus Jim Mullen. Jim Mullen, seen here making his UFC debut, has an 0-1 MMA record. He has a 16-1 record in professional kickboxing and is said to have knockout power. He weighed in at 200. 15 pounds. His opponent, Scott Ferrozo, is coming off a unanimous victory over Tank Abbott at UFC 11. It's a 2-1 UFC record and weighed in at 323 pounds. Yep, so despite the introduction of the weight division here, uh, Scott Ferrozo has a 108-pound weight advantage for the semi-final. As Bob said, yep, Tank Abbott joins the commentary team who takes a shot at uh, Ken Shamrock and the lightweight division by telling us that he's here. Uh, he isn't here for the small-time kiddie category. He's here for the heavyweights. Um, Abbott pits Ferozo to come out on top here, but he does call him a WWF wannabe, which does have to be a shot uh, at the hilarious promo we saw Ferozo cut at the Ultimate Ultimate 96, which uh, still lives long in my memory. Uh, we are underway. Uh, in the first semi-final, and Ferozo immediately swarms in and charges Mullen back to the fence early. He uses the huge weight advantage to press Mullen into the cage, landing the occasional knee. Ferozo lands some heavy uppercuts, but Mullen doesn't go down. Ferozo locks in a front face lock and forces Mullen down to the ground with his weight. He lands some hard knees to Mullen's head while he's against the cage. Ferozo continues to grind Mullen down, landing knees and short punches, and pretty much just squashing and dominate him with his weight. Mullen is able to stand by 
stand, but Ferozo quickly grabs him and slams him down into the guard. He passes into half guard and keeps Mullen pinned down with a forearm across his throat. Ferozo is really breathing heavily here, and he just attempts to smother Mullen. McCarthy calls for a pause to the action so they can check the swelling over Mullen's left eye. The action restarts, and Mullen lands a good left hand, but then attempts a spinning back elbow. Ferozio charges through him and sends him into fence. He drops it, three heavy knees to Mullen's head, and that is enough for the stoppage via TKO to give Ferozio the victory after eight minutes and two seconds. Uh, Tom, I'll come to you first on this fight. What did you think of the first heavyweight semi-final? I think it would have been impossible for me not to enjoy the fight when Scott Ferozo is fighting and Tank Abbott is on commentary. However, um, that aside, it was actually a good good fight. I, I liked it. It was it did it did border on being a bit of a smother fest um, when Ferozo had Mullen pinned against the cage and was just not letting him move and just absolutely smothering him. Um, there's no fun in that. And there's no skill in it either. But you know, it, you could argue there is skill because it took all the all the energy out of uh, Mullen and. Yeah, I, I was actually impressed with Ferozo. When he, when he was coming in, I was thinking, how is it this guy is a professional athlete? I mean, if you look at him, you just think, how it's not even possible. Like, he looks like someone that he'd be handy in the pub if you if you had a, you know uh, needed a, a couple of fists. But he doesn't look like a, a professional athlete. However, he you know he, he did some good some good fighting in here. He tried to finish it early because um, oh, yeah, in the in the promo before the um, before the fight, he said, I just want to avoid getting punched in the face, <laughs> which really made me laugh. Because he's probably in the wrong sport. Um, but yeah, he had some decent knees in there. Uh, Frozo had a good takedown. Um, a, a tank's commentary when he was saying he wanted... I think this, was there someone in, someone in um, Frozo's camp called Becky? I, I just, I've just got a note saying that Tank wants to shag Becky. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll fight her maybe in the bedroom <laughs> late at night. <laughs> and then, and then Beck clearly gives her a glare off there. He's like, ah, oh, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that's great. Right. Um, but, I mean... But, to be fair, right? You had Tank Abbott on country before. You know exactly what you're getting from him. There's no excuse in second time round. There is no... You can't say you weren't warned. Absolutely, absolutely. And in a way, they probably like it because it's, you know, they can say, well, we didn't, it was lying. We couldn't, we couldn't tell him not to say it if he wanted to say something. Um, so, you know, I think they knew what they were doing. But yeah, I, I personally don't think the fight should have been, um, restarted. I found it a really uncomfortable watch, um, once that happened. Mullen's eye was all, oh, it was horror show, absolute horror show. Um, and the weight difference was too much here. 108 pounds is too much, um, for a guy that's got more experience than the lighter, lighter fighter. Um, and I, I, I don't think it should have been restarted. I think it should have been it should have been finished, and Fraser should have been given the win before it was that that was done. But uh, no, good good fight. Yeah, uh, Bob, over to you for this one. Yeah, um, I can't really disagree much what Tom said. I mean, Ferozo for a professional athlete, is hideously out of shape. I know Abbott is to a point, and I know there's something. You know, there's the, the Roy Nelson theory that you carry a bit of extra weight, it can help. Um, but Abbott, like, you know, Ferozo's really out of shape. You wouldn't know it at all. Um, that being said, you know, he's still bloody impressive, but I get the feeling it was striking power combined with just sheer weight advantage that, that saw him put this, take this out. Um, but it took a while. Uh, that's some credit to Mullen that he, he hung in there for so long because he took some hellish knee shots at times. Um, and yeah, agree with Tom. Once it was stopped, it should have been stopped. They shouldn't have restarted the fight. Um, but for us, that looks impressive. Yeah, I, I thought Ferozo did look good here. I mean, this was exactly like one of the fights you'd see before the introduction of these two separate weight divisions. Uh, Mullen 
he had a good kickboxing record, uh, as you said, Bob, but we never really got to see if he had any skill standing. He landed that one good shot and then looked for the elbow and then was just steamrolled again, and Ferozo just smothered him with the huge weight advantage. Uh, credit to Ferozo, I mean... He's incredibly out of shape, but he is, he's def- he's no mug really. I mean, he, like having having his last the last time we saw him, he was defeating Tank Abbott. Um, like he's out of shape, but he uses it to his advantage. And Mullen's probably better standing fighter than him. Not that, and he knew that maybe going in, and but he didn't let Mullen show it. He, he used what he has no cardio game whatsoever, but he was just able to just steamroll him land a few knee shots, and it was a credit to Mullen, as you said, that he was able to survive as uh, long as he did. He showed some good heart. Um, probably I'd like to see Mullen fight a more equally weighted opponent. Uh, I mean, he was only 215, I think it was, pounds. If he had been able to cut that 15 pounds somehow, a longer term, maybe his place would be in the lightweight uh, half of the tournament. Just imagine, like, guys in Monday MMA have to, like, debate between 10 and 15 pounds. You know, sometimes even, like, 5 pound weight difference in terms of what, what weight category they're going to be. It's like, well, if I if I don't drop the 5 pounds, I'll be in this category and I'll be fighting guys that are 10 pounds heavier. Mullen's like, well, if I don't drop 15 pounds, he has to fight someone that's 108 pounds heavier than I am. <laughs> It's like it's just ridiculous, um, but yeah, they're they're moving in the right direction, but it takes them a while to get there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, Bob, straight back to you, really. Um, I don't think there was much of note after that fight, so we move straight on to our second heavyweight semi-final. Yes, heavyweight final number two: Vitor Belfort versus Trey Tellingman. Uh, Tellingman is a submission fighter with a three and MMA record, making his UFC debut. He's known for fighting despite having only one pectoral muscle. He trains out. Of the, I think he, they said on contrary, he lost that in a car crash when he was 18 months old. They said uh, he trains out of the lion's den and weighed in at 233 pounds. His opponent, Vitor Belfort, is making his UFC debut but enters with a one and MMA record in the modern day. The Phenom holds the record for the most knockouts in UFC history on tonight's showing. It's not particularly difficult to find out why. The Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu specialist weighed in at 205 pounds. Although Dave Meltzer did uh, did speculate um, that the difference that Belfort perhaps at the time of fighting actually weighed less than 200 pounds and that Bolander actually potentially weighed more, um, which is a bit interesting given the respective winners of their tournaments. But yes, back to you, Chris. Uh, yeah, so uh, as Vitor makes his way to the octagon, the announcers talk about how he's a potential to be a long-term great in the UFC, as he is just 19 years old, making his debut in the promotion here. And he also has an absolutely huge entourage with him. Um, Manny Garcia runs through the ring introductions, and Big John McCarthy gets us underway. Vitor takes the centre of the octagon immediately, with Teglin taking a more cautious stance, circling his opponent. This draws quick, quick criticism from Tank Abbott, who says he knows that Vitor can let his hands fly, and almost on cue, Vitor unleashes a lightning-quick combination which tags Telegman. Telegman tries to clinch, but Vitor breaks off, and he lands his trademark machine, now trademark machine gun punch combination, landing an incredible amount of shots in quick succession. Telegman looks for the clinch again, but Vitor knocks him down with a huge left hand, quickly dropping down into side mount. From there, he lands a series of lefts followed up with some horrible-looking elbows to the head, which bring the stoppage after just 1 minute and 17 seconds. After the fight, Tank Abbott says that Belfort looks sharp, 
but it was more of a reflection on who he had fought. He'd said he's interested in seeing how he develops. And I did wonder at this stage, although when I wrote this, I, I wasn't aware of what uh, Bob had said about Abbott in the uh, media section of the show. But I, I wonder if he knew that he was being lined up to face Vitor at UFC 13. Because he, he, the way he spoke about Belfort throughout uh, his duration on the commentary team did seem particularly uh, negative. He tried to undercut him in a number of ways, I thought, and he didn't, didn't necessarily give him his credit. And it didn't come across to me in the sort of typical uh, jokey Tank Abbott trying to wind you up kind of way. It seemed quite... Not bitter, I, that, that would be too harsh a word, but he did seem to be trying to discredit uh, Vitor Belfort on his uh, debut night in the promotion. Uh, but that's just a side note. So, uh, Bob, I'll come to you first for this one. Your thoughts on the uh, second heavyweight semi-final? Yeah, if he was trying to credit discredit him, it didn't work. I mean, you know, you just have to watch Belfort. It's like, holy fuck. I, mean, I don't think I've seen Belfort fight at all before, like, you know, now, like this show. Um, not seen any of his stuff since, though, not that I'm aware of. I may have seen him before without knowing who he was. But holy fuck! I mean, you know, they, you, you, you read in the, in, in the kind of build-up, reading some of the stuff ahead of this show, they're talking about Belfort's boxing being so good, he could go to the Olympics, that kind of thing. And my God, like he, you know, he got within range, and he, he lined him up for a couple of minutes, uh, for, a, you know, 30, 40 seconds, like that. And then he just started, I'm like, oh shit, those are quick hands. And they were like, God, blink and you'll miss it. Um, this is as impressive a debut as probably since Mark Coleman. That kind of level of, wow. I have the exact note, as impressive a debut for Vitor since, uh, as, as much as we've seen from anyone since Mark Coleman, I have the exact line in my notes uh, for the thoughts on this. Um, I completely agree. Uh, Tom, your thoughts on this fight? Yeah, how about this Vitor Belfort, eh? Oh, jeez, Louise. Uh, that, that is scary to watch. Like, I mean, it lasted a minute and 17 seconds, but he could have knocked him out in five se- uh, seconds. Uh, the, the, the striking power and speed of this boy, and he comes from the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu camp, so he's no slouch in, in that area either. Um, this is, uh, along with, uh, uh, as you guys say, this is a debut where you have to see this debut. It's, it's one of these things, I, I, I've seen it before, um, but I haven't seen it in a couple of years. And just, just to, to, to see, how, there was a lot of buzz around Vita Belfort around this time. And um, rightly so. Uh, I mean, as, as Bob said, most knockouts in UFC history. And it, it's amazing to consider that he even had a fight where he didn't knock the opponent out. He's just, it's, it's incredible speed um, and accuracy. And, and those elbows weren't, weren't um, very nice either. Um, so I felt really, really sorry for his opponent, and I feel even more sorry for his next opponent. Um, I was so impressed uh, with, with this debut from Vita Belfort. Um, and if you haven't seen it, please do check it out, because, as I say, it's only a minute long, and um, it's, it's incredible to watch. This is definitely a historically significant debut, um, so I would echo the thoughts that you have to go back and watch Belfort's fights from this show. Um, we haven't seen up until this point uh, striking. I remember it was a couple of shows back. They, uh, one of the commentators, I can't remember what one, um, they were talking about how we haven't seen a, a, a significantly world-class level striker uh, dominate within the UFC, and he thought with time, um, striking would become a bigger part of the sport. Um, and this was sort of the beginning of that almost. That we haven't seen striking at this stage executed 
with the combination of speed and skill uh, that Vitor Belfort showed in this fight um, at all yet. And what makes it all the more impressive, as Tom alluded to, he's 19 years old and he's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu champion. So that aspect of his game is absolutely on point as well. Um, this was uh, an excellent debut um, and he made short work of the opponent who was just clearly no match for him here. But on this night, would there have been many people who were? Um, next up, we switch straight to a video package covering Mark Coleman and his training for his heavyweight title fight in the main event of this show. He says he thinks the fight will come down to who has the most heart and he feels that he could have won the Ultimate Ultimate 1996 tournament, and it was very difficult for him to watch that show. We cut backstage to Joe Rogan, and he announces that Takahashi is out of the lightweight tournament finals due to a broken hand suffered in his bout with Ishmael. Alternate Nick Sanzo is taking his place against Boatlander. Sanzo, if you remember, had a 48-second victory earlier in the night. Um, Ken Shamrock joins the commentary team again for the lightweight finals, so, Bob, I'll throw it to you as it's time for the lightweight final itself. Yes, Jay Bolander versus Nick Sanzo. Bolander comes to the final with a 3-1 UFC record. Lions then competitor weighed in at 199 pounds. His opponent, Nick Sanzo, made his MMA debut earlier in the night to enter the final with a 1-0 record. He's a jiu-jitsu specialist and weighed in also at 199 pounds. Thank you, Bob. Uh, straight into the action, and Sanzo opens up with a quick takedown attempt, but Bolander is able to scramble, block, and gets in a front face lock. He lands some knees to the head, locks his arms across the back of Sanzo's neck, and rolls through into a crucifix neck crank for the submission victory after just 48 seconds. Shamrock claims to have been working on that specific move with Bolander in the last three weeks. Uh... Bob, we'll come to you first, and then I'll talk about the interview with Rogan afterwards. So, Bob, yeah, your thoughts yeah. on the short fight? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, yeah, short would be the word. Um, yeah, Bolander just looks in a different class to uh, to Sanzo. Um, I think that's that's now the level we're at. They seem to be able to get competitive main level fighters, but the you know the alternates just don't seem to be up to the same standard. I don't want to cut Bolander too far, but was a bit disappointed we didn't get to see Bolander and Takahashi because that could have been a lot of fun. Yep, completely agree. Uh, Tom, your thoughts on that? Yeah, that would have been a fight that um, uh, couldn't couldn't not have been a, a, a good um, uh, just to see the two. The two I was really excited to see Bolander versus Takashi, just to see how's it going to go because again, Takashi so unpredictable and Bolander so impressive that I just thought this is this is a real combustible element. Um, but Sanzo, you got to feel for him. You know, he said before in his promo, he said you've always got to be ready. I always think I'm going to be included in these fights, so if I'm not, it's it's almost a surprise. But it, it was it was different. He was outclassed, as Bob said. Uh, composure, strength, balance from Bolander. Um, and that crucifix choke looked so painful, uh, especially in the replay. Some some of the chokes and the holds, when you see them in, in MMA, it's actually, you can imagine that it must hurt, but you think, oh, I can't really feel it because it's not happening to me. You watch that crucifix choke and it it hurts to watch it. It was, ouch, uh, is, is all I would say about that. Um, and it, yeah, 39 seconds, quick fight, but um, uh, Bolander is, is, is highly impressive. Yeah, a great showing throughout the night for Bolander. Uh, on a routine way to winning comfortably the first ever lightweight tournament um, up with a highlight reel submission, as you as you say, Tom. Um, just keeps betting, getting better and better. Um, and as I said earlier, he's going to definitely uh, 
benefit from the uh, under £200 division, although I was unaware of what Tom mentioned about him potentially being over that weight limit. Um, after the fight, Joe Rogan interviews the delighted Bolander. Um, Bolander says he wants to keep getting better and he wants to keep winning. Bo- uh, Rogan asks him who he would like to fight, and Bolander says that he really wanted Takahashi, but would be up for fighting anyone who steps into that octagon. All I can say is I would have loved to see Bolander Takahashi as well. Before we get straight into the heavyweight tournament finals, we have a video package covering Dan Seven. It says there isn't a moment he isn't thinking about this fight and running over different scenarios that could play out in it. He says that the beast is here, the beast is crazy, and the beast wants to perform. He has no animosity for Mark Coleman. This is all about competition. After that, we cut back to the Octagon where we are getting ready for the heavyweight tournament finals. So over to Bob for the introductions. Yes, the tournament final, Vitor Belfort versus Scott Ferroso. Belfort enters the final with a 3-0 MMA record. The 19-year-old weighs in at 205 pounds. His opponent, Scott Ferroso, has a 3-1 MMA record and weighs in at 323 pounds, giving him a 118-pound advantage in this final. Before the fight gets underway, Tank Abbott rejoins the commentary team. He says that while Belfort definitely has great hand speed, it doesn't mean that there's any power behind those punches, and we'll have to see how the rotund one can handle them. We are underway, and Ferozo taunts Belfort as we begin. Ferozo presses forward, and Belfort cracks him with a lightning quick left, following up with an even faster left hand, which drops Ferozo's face first onto his stomach. Belfort drives straight onto him, and after a scrabble, ends up in a rear waist lock. He begins unleashing Powerful, hard right hands to Ferozo's head, and Big John quickly stops the fight right there after just 48 seconds. Ferozo, either just completely out of it or being a dick, grabs Belfort and tries to uh, tries for a single leg takedown, which Big John and another UFC official have to dive on and force him off. Belfort and his absolutely enormous entourage celebrate all chanting jiu-jitsu, despite Vitor Belfort needing to show absolutely no Brazilian jiu-jitsu skills on his way to winning this tournament. Uh, Tom, I'll come to you first. Uh, thoughts on this fight? Uh, we, we all had a, a session appreciating Belfort's debut earlier, but for my mind, this was even more impressive because we've seen his opponent, Ferozo, put away tough guys in the past, so... Uh, an even more impressive performance in this fight for me. Yeah, I mean, it, it, reason alone being a 118-pound weight difference and how scarily um, un- unnecessary or, or even in- inconsequential that, that fact was. Um, Belfort's left jab, I mean, the, the first one was, was bad. The second one was just uh, dropped him with, with, you know, within about five. Um, scary speed in his hands. Uh, took, yeah, he, t- he t- took the back, and and it, it was it was um, a bit of a shame, really. When Scott Frozo came in, I, I actually when he was walking in, I thought he doesn't look right. I actually thought he doesn't look. Um, I don't know whether it was just because of the, the, the tournament format, and he was you know still reeling from the fight before, but he looked a bit pale, and he looked I don't know, he didn't look right to me. Um, but it, it was over very quickly, and that ending, I mean. You talk about jump out your seat moments. Oh, it's, it's, it's like it was like a, a WWE thing, where the fight was over. Big John stands him up, and then it's like, oh no, it's not over. And he, he literally—I don't know what he was planning on doing for Ozo, but he picked Belfort up 
um, just hooked him under, with, his, with his right hand and pitting, tried to hook, sort of raise him into the air. And big John McCarthy is a big dude, and he just pinned um, Ferozo against the... He did have another guy to help him, but he pinned him against the side of the cage. Um, and Belfort's camp were going crazy, weren't they? And, and then uh, Tank, I, 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 I can't remember exactly what he said, but I think he said, um, and look at this, anyone would think he's won the Olympics. Because they were really going for it. And it's just, again, it was very, um, you almost got the feeling he was setting something up further down the line with his, uh, his, his negativity towards Belfort and his camp. Um, but maybe it was just Tank being Tank. But no, uh, Visa Belfort is, I, I would argue um, that he is, well, he's definitely the most exciting prospect at this stage in the UFC. But you could argue he's the best all-round fighter. I mean, we haven't, we haven't seen enough of him to, to, to perhaps have, have that knowledge, um, for, you know, for fact. But from what we saw tonight, just scary and where this guy's going to go um you know we know where he goes but it's going to be fascinating to watch um going forward as well uh quickly on Ferozo, i think you're right about him not looking uh, okay as he made his way to the octagon i think after he defeated tank abbott on that night he was an alternate in a tournament so, so abbott's opponent was injured uh he came into the semi-final won the match and then couldn't compete in the final. I'm not sure, and I think his alternate bout on that night was maybe less than a minute. I'm not sure he's ever really had two fights in one night before. He's definitely not built for that. And mm. uh, it, like, he, he maybe expended a lot of energy in that eight-minute uh, semi-final victory. And I mean, credit to the guy for not pulling out, I suppose. But he, he definitely, he, his mind, was, his heart wasn't in it, I, didn't, I thought, from the off. Uh, Bob, your thoughts on the fight in general? Yeah, second line in my notes just reads, holy fuck, how good was that? Right at the moment where uh, Belfort knocked Ferozo down. I mean, Jesus, the, the hand speed involved there, the coordination. I mean, you know, it's no, no wonder they thought he, he, he could have boxed at, a, at an amateur level or potentially more. Um, but yeah, I'd agree, you know, Ferozo, I mean, you know, it comes back to what we said earlier, Ferozo doesn't look like he's built for one fight, let alone two. Um, but I suspect when he goes in fresh, it, you know, it's okay. Um, as for the finish, I mean, you know, it was fine, wasn't it? I mean, you know, the, Ferozo might might have been caught by surprise by it. I think the reason he tried to pick him up was because he thought the fight was carrying on. Um, he just thought, oh, you know, I see an opportunity for a takedown, I'll go for it. I think that's what that was. Um, but yeah, another massively impactive impressive victory for Belfort. Um, and yeah, could only just be continue to be impressed. Uh, literally a stunning uh, demonstration of uh, hand speed from Vito Belfort with those punches that dropped for Ozo. Um, so, uh, Bob, you've said you haven't seen Vito fight before, uh, but maybe, Tom, you'll understand. For years, people have spoken about the old Vito Belfort and sort of how much his sort of skill level has deteriorated, whether that be in the USADA era or even just before that with age and having burst onto the scene at such a young young age and still have been fighting for the best part of 20 years later. I mean, he officially retired um, within the last couple of months, but he said he's interested in coming out of retirement already to fight in his hometown. Um, so, I mean, he, well, he's approaching 40 years old now, but when people talk about the old Vitor Belfort, this is the guy that people are referring to. And, I mean... It's just an awesome performance throughout both of his fights, which he won almost entirely with his exceptional stand-up skills. And as I said earlier, knowing how well-versed he is on the ground, um, this was a real statement to everyone on his first night in the company. As you say, definitely the best prospect we've seen. 
Um, and you could certainly make a case for the most impressive fighter we've seen, especially knowing, as we do, that Don Fry isn't around again and certain other fighters like Dan Seven doesn't fight again for a number of years within the UFC. So this is the beginning of a an animal within the UFC, and it was a, was an exceptional watch. Any any other thoughts on Vitor, or should we move straight on? I think it's time to move on. Move on. Tank uh, Abbott, just before he leaves the commentary team, he is asked about Ken Shamrock. He calls him a fraud. He says Shamrock should actually focus on reaching the final of a tournament and that Shamrock isn't on his radar because Tank Abbott calls the shots. Now, Don Fry then joins the commentary team, which is pretty interesting because, in my mind, after the, uh, the last UFC show we watched, I didn't think we were ever going to see him in the UFC again. He doesn't ever fight again, but I thought he was completely done with the promotion. Um, he says that the people have been robbed because he's unable to compete due to a broken hand, which caused the commission to cancel the fight between him and Seven. He thinks the main event will be a close one, but he leans toward Dan Seven, having known him for the last 10 years. Um, with that, we move straight into our main event, and it's time to crown the first ever UFC heavyweight champion. So, Bob, over to you. Yes, Mark Cole versus Dan Seven. Mark Cole entered this fight with a 5-0 and record in the UFC with his last appearance coming back in September 96 as he won the UFC 11 tournament. The freestyle wrestler weighed in for this one at £240. His opponent, Dan Seven, enters the fight with a 14-2 and MMA record with his last UFC appearance and the infamous split decision victory over Ken Shamrock back at UFC 9. He's fought five times since then. He's got a nine-fight win streak. He weighed in at £260. After a tentative opening, Seven shoots in for a takedown, but Coleman is able to sprawl and grabs a front face lock, with both guys coming up standing. They separate, and Coleman avoids another takedown attempt, this time landing a crisp right hand as Seven comes in. Seven shoots again, but Coleman is able to block it again, and ends up on top in full mount. Seven quickly rolls out of it, and Coleman grabs a rear waist lock. Coleman lands a, short, a few short rights to the back of Seven's head, so he tries to roll out of the position, but Coleman ends up in top in full mount. Coleman lands a few rights to Seven's ribs before transitioning into side mount and locking in a side headlock. Seven tries to fight back, landing some weak-looking strikes to the top of Coleman's head, as well as jamming his hand into Coleman's face and eyes. I don't think he was intentionally going for the eyes, but certainly did make contact with them. Um, but Coleman is able to keep the neck crank headlocks locked in and eventually Dan Seven taps out after just two minutes and 40, uh, 57 seconds, declaring Mark Coleman the first ever UFC heavyweight champion. Uh, Tom, I'll come to you first on this fight. Uh, what did you think about that? Yeah, I, it was a good fight. I, I enjoyed it. I, I, there was, I've got a few thoughts on it. I mean, Mark Coleman came across incredibly well. Um, just a scary athlete. Um, the, way, the way he reacted when he, when he won. I mean, he just went apeshit, just just running around. He almost looked like he he, he needed something to break. You, you know, he, he was so pumped up and so amped. Um, but you know, he's a guy that takes it very seriously. Um, there was a lot of talk that you know he wasn't getting the respect that he felt he deserved. Um, and Seven was given a sort of, I guess we'd call it a Hall of Famer um, uh, sort of character, where people think anyone that comes up against him is, is going to be in trouble. And Dan Seven, at 38 years old. Uh, Coleman was 32, I think. Um, I think Seven's age showed here. Uh, not not just his age, um, but but I think that was that was key for me. He looked a couple of steps behind 
um, his, 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 when he was shooting at the start to try and take Coleman down, it was it was never really going to happen. Coleman was so alert and so um, so much more on the front foot and, and, and you know, sprawling and stopping it. And um, you know that headlock that Coleman put on that was tight. You could see it was wearing Seven down. And Seven's movement when he was on the ground, I mean, he just just didn't have it in him. He just didn't have it in him. He didn't seem to have the ability to. Um, you know, and this is credit to Coleman for, for you know his positioning. But Seven just couldn't get out, and then you know, he, he, as you say, he wanted to form out, and he sort of, I think he was just trying it out just to see, okay, let's see if I can do anything here, um, and, and he couldn't. So no, Mark Coleman imp- impressed me a hell of a lot uh, in, in, for the whole pay per view, but also particularly in this fight when when you say he's against one of the one of the all time greats, really. Um, and we've watched some absolute stinker Dan Seven matches in the past in terms of. You know, no, 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 no attacking. No, no, no one's on the front foot. You know that Shamrock fight that we we, we talked about at length. Um, you compare it to this, and Mark Coleman was making a statement, and he's saying, you know, I'm the guy that you should be respecting, and I'm the guy that people should be talking about to say who's going to be fighting Mark Coleman next, not who's going to be fighting Dan Seven. So yeah, really impressive. He, he totally deserved it. Um, I was just a bit disappointed to see Seven's performance because um, he's a legend, and it was, I don't know, it was a bit sad to see uh, he was just so so out. He just, he just got completely outclassed in, in this one for me. But uh, no, it was, it was a good fight and the right winner. Bob, over to you. Yeah, I'm not, you know, you don't want to be too critical because Colm was that damn good, but I, I'm not sure what Seven's game plan was. Like, you know, shooting against a, a, a wrestler of, of Colm's attitude was, was an interesting way of starting. Um, and he just ended up on his back on the mat and I thought... Yeah, good luck getting out of this. Like, you know, it was almost like if Seven's a great counterfighter, you know, what what was his plan against Coleman? I don't know, in a funny kind of way, I don't know what Dan Seven could have deployed to have beaten Coleman in the sense that I feel like they're such similar fighters. I just feel like Coleman's better. Um, And this kind of showed here, um, in that, say, you know, not to say that Coleman's better than Seven full stop, just more the case that there might be other fighters that are more suited to beating Coleman. Um, and Seven kind of ended up on his back, and Coleman just took charge. And I think you say about what um, Seven was trying to do on the mat, I'm not sure there's anything he could do, and Coleman's a huge dude. And once he had that kind of, you know, almost like this like neck lock, like choke-like you know, suffocation type submission just with those massive arms. You know, what what do you do from here? In the end, I think he kind of you know, tapped because the only other thing he could have done would have been pass out. Um, but yeah, another hugely impressive victory for Coleman. In many ways, probably the most impressive so far. Yeah, I agree with both of you. I was definitely expecting this to be a lot more even, and Coleman just absolutely dominated the whole three minutes. Um he never looked like getting a take. Dan Seven never looked like getting a takedown. Uh, Coleman was just far too dominant, really, and much superior of his wrestling. Whether you put that down to age or conditioning on a said night, but these were probably the two best wrestlers um, the UFC had seen up until this point. So this did signify a real passing of the torch. And when you consider the fact that uh, Seven won't fight in the UFC again till September of the year two thousand. Um, this was quite significant to me. Uh, so Coleman has finished. Uh, he had a fight at UFC 11 with Julian Sanchez. He finished the fight in the exact same way. We're just locking on this sort of like headlock, neck clamp sort of. Um, but obviously, Julian Sanchez is no Dan Sevens. This was much more impressive. Um, you, you could probably tell 
over the last number of months doing these shows, but I absolutely love Mark Coleman, um, and he has been by far my favourite fighter since we've been covering it from this era. In terms of uh, what he delivers in the octagon, he's been he's been my favourite. And what's interesting to note, I mean, I'll get onto his interview with Rogan in a second, um, but Coleman's next fight is his first loss, and up until now he has been sort of indestructible and invincible and he's put away Don Fry, he's put away Dan Seven, he's put away everyone who's dared into the octagon with him and the next fight is where it all starts turning around and the wheels start falling off for Mark Coleman. So um, covering that sort of fall from the pinnacle is going to be interesting um, because watching it uh, sort of with the hindsight it's almost you, you can't really, I find it hard to connect dots between this and a Mark Coleman that's going to lose a number of fights in the next number of years. So it's a, it's definitely a, a, a really impressive performance for Mark Coleman. Um, any other thoughts on that fight, or should I move on? Quite nothing else. No. All good. So, yeah, then we have Joe Rogan in the octagon interviewing Mark Coleman. He says he's very proud to be a wrestler, and he doesn't believe that there's any man in the UFC who could take him down. He says that he would fight any man the fight the fans want him to see fight. Sorry, let's that again. He says he would fight any man the fans want to see him fight, and uh, but he would like to take on Don Fry next, as Don Fry probably deserves a rematch. And with that promo, that brings to a close uh, UFC 12, and thus our review of the show. Before we give our overall thoughts on the show, um, just run through quickly our picks for uh, Fighter of the Night and Fighter of the Night. So, Bob, I'll come to you first on those two. Uh, your thoughts on those two awards? Uh, fight of the night, I think I will go with Ishmael and Takahashi. Um, just for a lot of shit going on for a fight that you know went the distance but didn't feel like it dragged um, between two very even guys. Don't get me wrong, there's some stuff going on that you don't necessarily like, but in terms, of, I think that was the. The, the, the best and probably the most evenly matched fight of the night, certainly in terms of how it came out. Um, and while there might be some disagreement on that, I don't think any of us three are, are not going to give Bell for the fighter of the night. Uh, Tom, over to you. Yep, I agree on the fight of the night. Um, Ishmael and Takashi, I, I thought that um, uh, it's, it's a fight that you almost have to watch it just to see from the historical side of it how it it can it can veer so far away from the rules that are we understand made very clear to the competitor, uh, competitors uh, before they step in there. Um, and it's a fascinating watch and a good fight as well. And yeah, uh, Vita Belfort is like, uh, you talk about uh, someone that's built for highlight reels. Jeez Louise. Um, just, he just stormed his way through uh, this pay-per-view. And even though Mark Coleman came out of it, uh, you know, he was in the main event, he, he got the win. Everybody was talking about Vita Belfort, um, and you can see why when you when you see the way he smashed his way through it. Uh, so yeah, that's the same as Bob. Yep, three for three on both of those. Takahashi Ishmael was a, a unique, uh, fascinating, and frustrating fifteen minutes. Um, that's certainly noteworthy and well worth fifteen minutes of anyone's time. And fighter of the night, as you said, Coleman very impressive in the main event, but it just has to go to Vitor Belfort, nineteen years old. Uh, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner with that much ability and that much speed with his boxing is a force to be reckoned with. And uh, this was 
probably as impressive a debut as we're going to see for a number of years, I'd imagine. And finally, to wrap up the coverage of the show, um, I'll come back to you first, Bob, with your overall thoughts on the show and a score rating out of 10. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was quite impressed by this show from a production standpoint before I even learnt the context around it. Um, I, I felt like from a, yeah, the pre the post, uh, sorry, the pre-fight interviews felt by far the best they'd ever done. We were up there, were just basic sit-downs, but there wasn't any, you know, I think beforehand you could just say they'd like tee them up as they go on preview your fight and they had to like kind of awkwardly talk their way through it. This was much more, we'll sit you down, we'll ask some questions and we'll pick the, pick the ones we want to use. Much more akin to what they do modern day. Um, you know, they had, they, they knew there was a chance and a lot of these fights are very quick. The show could have been a lot longer, but you know, for once they had something to fill that time. We, we saw, you know, you, you only really briefly mentioned them, but we saw full-length fights of both Seven and Coleman before the main event, as well as all the hype stuff they did there. Um, so, yeah, I was very impressed with what they did. But when you put it into the context of everything that happened in the 48 hours before this show, a mentally good effort to get it all out there. Uh, as for the show itself, it was, you know, in some ways, you know, again, the, the, the standard's improving, but in some ways it was quite a a flat show in the sense that a lot of quite one-sided matches uh, but still quite enjoyable I'll give it a 7 out of 10 Over to you Tom Yeah I think I echo Bob's thoughts in a number of ways um, I thought the production was uh, very good it, it gets I, I get the feeling now and, and, and as we go through these it's, it's becoming very obvious the format is becoming um, easy for them to run and that's why I alluded to when they said when they um, had to change the venue within 24 hours of running the show, they were able to run it pretty, as we said, we didn't even notice, and, and that deserves points alone, um, and yeah, seeing Joe Rogan, who's a very familiar face, um, seeing Vita Belfort, who is, you know, all the time I've been into, I've been into him, he's been around, um, so I, I think overall the show was, uh, was, was very good, I don't think there was a classic fight in here. Uh, one that you would you would say really stands the test of time um, in terms of the technical flair or, or what have you, um, but it did have Vita Belfort punching people um, for the first time, which people hadn't seen at that caliber in um, all that speed or that power or that accuracy or any of those um, in U- UFC or MMA to this point on on widely broadcast TV anyway. So for me, um, I would I was I was originally going to give it a seven. But I, well, once I learn what happened to the show and the fact they will run it 24 hours later in a different place, I'm going to give that an eight because I think it's fun, it's incredible they were able to do it. Yeah, I agree with both of you. Really, I I enjoyed watching this show. Um, would echo Tom's thoughts in that there wasn't really a classic fight, but there certainly were a few classic moments. Um, really enjoyed this show, top to bottom. I thought the format of having two separate four-man tournaments as opposed to one eight-man tournament aided the show in running smoother with sort of less delays between fights and fighters having longer, only having to fight at most twice in an evening and having a longer break in between fights. Um, meant fighters were ready to go when it was their time to go, um, with the exception of Takahashi, but that's sort of an injury withdrawal and that, that's part of tournament NMA. You're going to get that. That's why you have alternate bouts. Um, I, yeah, I, I, everything about this show is impressive. Um, I, overall thoughts, uh, sorry, overall score rate out of 10, I'll split the difference and go 7.5 for the sake of uh, average 
average, averages, sorry. And uh, yeah, I, I have to say, really enjoyable show. Noteworthy for the uh, debut of uh, Vitor Belfort and also for the crowning of the first ever UFC heavyweight champion. Um, and that will wrap up this month's uh, MMA 20 Years Ago podcast. I'd firstly like to thank uh, Bob Bamba for joining us. Yes, thank you. Hopefully my uh, you know, my slightly you know, just knackered state, having stayed at watch Super Bowl last night, and my just general illness haven't come across too much, but somewhat flagging now. But yes, thank you very much, Chance. It's uh, another USC show in the books, another very, very enjoyable one. And, of course, thank you very much to uh, Tom Martin. It's a pleasure, Chris. This uh, was a, a great show, um, and it, uh, I just just to repeat something that I've said three or four times already: um, you have to watch Peter Belfort fight in this in this in this pay per view. Yeah, I would I would certainly uh, add my stamp of approval to that comment. Um, Bob, would you like to get any plugs out there? Any Patreon plugs or anything like that before we wrap up the show? Or yeah, I might as well. Uh, yes, for, uh, for for those who uh, would like to say thank you for our MMA or indeed our our wrestling content for five bucks a month. We're offering early access to shows. January was a bit of a disaster in that front, given that it, we, we finished recording all the shows and then I didn't, wasn't able to edit them until six days later. Uh, but generally, where available, where I can edit them, uh, we will offer early access to shows uh, on Patreon for five bucks a month. Or if you just want to say thank you for our contributions to your podcasting month, you can find out more information at patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20 YRS on our own website or in the podcast description. Uh, and also, if you'd like to follow me, on Twitter, you can do so at Bobby Bamba. Uh, Tom, would you like to get your Twitter handle out there? Sorry, gents. Yeah, well, I was going to say that's incredibly rude of you, and how dare you not throw over to me? So thanks for doing that. Yeah, you can get me on Twitter on Mark Out Martin, and that's with a Y. Thanks, Tom. Um, yeah, so this has been Volume Four of this month's uh, Wrestling Twenty Years Ago podcast with your MMA Twenty Years Ago podcast. Volume One is, of course, your WCW covering Super Brawl. Volume Two, back in the time machine, is your WWF with In Your House Final Four. Volume Three, all your ECW action, looking at Cyberslam. And as I said, this is Volume Four. Um, I have been Chris White. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris White Fourteen. Uh, Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon.